This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ron. As you know, the news is moving really quickly this week. And before we dive into the episode, I wanted to let you know that we recorded this show before Attorney General Merrick Garland gave his statement about the warrant the FBI received and left with Trump's counsel before searching his residence at Mar-a-Lago on Monday. In his statement, Garland said that the Department of Justice has now filed a motion to unseal that warrant and the property receipt of materials taken during the search. As of right now, we don't know whether Trump will support or oppose that motion, but it will ultimately be up to the judge to decide either way. Ron DeSantis was like, he lives over there. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And I'm so excited for our incredible panel today because returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite Lene Erickson. Lene is the senior vice president for the social policy and politics program at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Lene, it's great to see you on this, the most boring of news weeks that we've had in quite a while. Yeah, we have nothing to talk about. <laughs> and Politicology's favorite psychology professor, Catherine Sanderson. Catherine holds a PhD in psychology from Princeton University and is now the Polar Family Professor and Chair of the Psychology Department at Amherst College. Catherine, always a pleasure to have you. Good morning. Thank you so much for the invitation to return. And by the way, what a wonderful mm -hmm. conversation with another psychologist you have this week. If anyone oh. has not yet heard the interview with Michelle Gelfin, let me just <sighs> give um, a five-star rating to that one. So, Thank you for the shout out. <laughs> Michelle was wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. I hope she'll do a roundup with us sometime. On this week's roundup, first, we're going to discuss what we know about the FBI's search of Mar-a-Lago this Monday and the reaction to the search in the media among elected officials and others. Then we'll discuss Pennsylvania Senate candidate John Fetterman's outreach to rural voters and whether we should expect to see a playbook change in Democratic campaigns. And finally, when we switch tracks over to Politicology Plus, we're going to discuss Liz Cheney's campaign ad attacking Donald Trump and her primary battle. Again, that will be in Politicology Plus, which is a private ad-free version of the podcast where we bring you strategy and analysis you can't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free, or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
On Monday, two dozen FBI agents and technicians searched Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida. They executed a search warrant to obtain any government-owned documents at Trump's home that were required to be delivered to the National Archives under the Presidential Records Act. The Records Act establishes that presidential records are property of the U.S. government and not the president's private property. And Trump actually signed a law in 2018 that made it a felony to remove and retain classified documents, and that was after the Clinton email scandal. The search was related to the 15 boxes of records that Trump brought with him to Florida when he left the White House. And earlier this year, the National Archives arranged to collect those 15 boxes and found several documents that were classified, with some even being marked top secret. Now, they referred the matter to the DOJ for investigation, and the DOJ opened a grand jury investigation this past spring. There has been very, very little reporting about the probe, which is probably a good thing in keeping with DOJ policy. But in order to obtain a search warrant, investigators would have needed to demonstrate probable cause of a violation of federal law and probable cause that there was evidence of a federal crime at Mar-a-Lago. Now, Newsweek is reporting that the search was based on information from, quote, confidential human sources, one of whom was able to identify what classified documents Trump was still hiding at the location of those documents. And the Secret Service was notified several hours before the warrant was served, and Trump's own security detail assisted the investigators and gave them access to the property. I should also mention that the FBI investigators were not wearing those FBI windbreakers. They were in plain clothes, not, again, not the windbreakers that you usually see on TV, and they conducted the search while Trump was out of the state. It's also important to note here that the news media learned of the search from a statement that Trump put out, not from the DOJ or from the FBI or from the White House, and that Eric Trump is the person who revealed the search was related to the documents. The FBI and Justice still have not commented on the search, again, in keeping with policy. Uh, but several legal experts, um, including a friend of mine who's a former DOJ prosecutor, have said that something as sensitive as searching the home of a former president would have needed approval from the highest levels of the FBI and DOJ. A senior Justice Department source told Newsweek that Garland received regular briefings on the Records Act investigation, but he had no prior knowledge of the date and time of the warrant being served. So this is all very fuzzy. And we'll get into the reaction to the search uh, later in our second segment. But I want to start by focusing on the really critical piece here that's gotten lost in a lot of the coverage probable cause of criming, and that there was evidence of that criming at the former president's house. Lene, <laughs> a, a couple of things, a lot of things, really. <laughs> Can you first tease out the legal standard for probable cause, um, explain to people what standard uh, has to be met for something like this to happen, and can you help us unpack what a big deal it is that there's probable cause and that there was evidence of federal crime in the home of a former president. <laughs> sure. So, I mean, to start, we need to back up and, and realize that this was not done by uh, the White House. In fact, the White House and, and Democrats learned of it from Donald Trump, as you said. Joe Biden had nothing to do with this. In fact, the, um, the head of the FBI is Donald Trump's 
director of the FBI, Christopher Wray. So we are talking about um, a completely separate, you know, legal um, set of proceedings, not a political set of proceedings. Um, and so Christopher Wray had to prove um, to a, a federal judge that, in fact, it was likely that uh, Donald Trump had um, unauthorized things in his possession that belonged to the people of the United States and not to him. Um, and then they went and got them. So basically, you know, it's kind of like the most simple um, standard of proof. It's like, he probably has this stuff at his house. It does not belong to him. We're going to go get it. Um, and it was done through the same process that would happen for any citizen um, who has stolen property in, in their home. Um, although, of course, with the most careful of evidence, because this has, you know, so much, um, so much political heft. Okay, Catherine, I want to know what your reaction to this was outside of the outside of the legality and the legal appropriateness, um, which which you know we, has been very clearly established. Um, just watching this, what was your reaction? So I will say I had two reactions. First, I I feel a little bit like a lot of us are getting our hopes up that this is it, right? Okay, all right, they got him. <laughs> Something illegal, you know, that that he actually did. Uh, and and so I just, I am hoping, and I imagine eventually, you know, Maggie Haberman or something, you know, someone will, will break it and we'll know what it is. I think it seems like there's almost no chance that Trump himself is going to release the search warrant because he would have done so already. But I think eventually we'll know what it is. And I just, I hope it's, I hope it is big enough. I hope it's not, um, well, you know, I meant to declass, I, I already declassified this in my mind and I just chose not to and that that it's, you know, sort of nothing or whatever. So I, I really hope that it's not another one of the like, okay, we got him this time because I feel like there've been a number of times when, oh, well, the New York Times broke the story of he cheated on his taxes. Oh, well, you know, and and so on. So so I don't want to get my hopes up. But the other thing that that actually really occurred to me was it's very clear, and I think Lene's answer, you know, really described this in depth, that someone knew a lot, right? Because somebody said, here's what it is, and here's where it is. And it's not mm -hmm. just, I don't really trust him, or I don't really know if the search was, I mean, it was specific, it is my understanding. And, and so what I'm actually most intrigued with is who is that person? Because of course, a lot of my work looks at whistleblowers, you know, moral rebels, people who take some risk. And the person who took, made those steps is obviously somebody close to Trump, because they had to have the level of detail to say, this is what it is, and this is where it is. And so I'm actually really interested in who that person is. I am very interested in who that person is, and only time will tell. There's, um, there's, a, there's a few things I want to run through here that seem to be uh, either getting missed or being misrepresented in some of the national coverage here, the Light Your Hair on Fire national coverage. Um, First is there's so much that we don't know here. And so a lot of what you're seeing uh, on cable news or wherever you get your news is a lot of speculation. There's a lot, a lot of speculation. And the reason there's a lot of speculation is because the Department of Justice is doing its job. There has not been any comment, any explanation about an ongoing investigation, which is DOJ protocol. So let's just, let's just get that out of the way. We haven't seen the search warrant, which only tells you what evidence they're looking for, and it cites the relevant laws they believe were broken, but it doesn't tell you all of the other evidence that supports the warrant. So first of all, we, but we haven't even seen the warrant, okay? 
Probable cause does not necessarily even need to include who committed the crime, okay? Search warrants apply to places like homes, not necessarily to people. So it is possible. This is in relation to other people. That's also possible. Uh, The Department of Justice has been doing a lot of work for a long time because executing the search warrant is not the first step of an investigation. Um, And, you know, if this is indeed about classified documents, Catherine, as you said, we hope it's something like big. Um, This is really messy from a prosecutorial perspective because presidents are, you know, the classifying authority. Uh, although ex-presidents are not classifying authorities. Um, There's one interesting take here, Lene, that I'd love for you to weigh in on, which is Andrew McCarthy, who's a former chief assistant U.S. attorney, um, writing in the National Review. He makes this argument. Basically, the search was almost certainly about much more than classified documents. And he argues this has more to do with January 6th than it does with classified documents. Now, this this falls into the bucket of pure speculation, but his theory is essentially this. Prosecutors can get a warrant to search a place based on probable cause for one crime, but during the execution of that search warrant, they are legally allowed to seize any evidence of any other crimes that they find along the way and to use that evidence to prosecute those other crimes. So what do you make of that theory? <laughs> I guess to continue the speculation, boy, I hope that's yeah. what it's about. I mean, you know, I think if we're talking about, um, you know, prosecuting the former president of the United States, who may be a presidential candidate again um, in, you know, just a handful of months uh, or even sooner, who knows, um, then we better come with the goods. And I think, you know, this is not a like we're going to get them on tax fraud kind of situation. (laughs) I think we, we, you know, we saw that even with the impeachment, like people get tired of hearing about all the little things that Donald Trump has done that are illegal because it's a very long list. And we've been talking about them for years. And, you know, so if you add another tick to, hey, he doesn't follow the rules and, um, you know, there's a technicality that he broke yet again for the 15,000th time, that doesn't really seem like enough to, you know, put him in jail. If we are talking about, you know, conspiracy to murder the vice president and, you know, members of Congress and uh, stop the peaceful transfer of power, that's a different thing. So I am hopeful that, um, you know, that if we are going to see further criminal, you know, action towards the former president, that it is going to be about something that is really worth our time and that we don't get stuck on these small things that for any other person would put them in prison. But this man has, you know, done so many of them at this point that, you know, it seems like just run of the mill. Um, you know, I do think that there, the, I, I like how you talked about a place versus a person, because, you know, I've been thinking about property versus, you know, criminality of a person as well. And, you know, I kind of referenced like if someone has stolen materials at their home, um, the you can go get them if you can prove that they're there. Um, and this to me seems like um, there's a distinction between going and getting our property. Like this is our stuff. You have it. Um, there's, there's national security um, risks here. And we know that Mar-a-Lago isn't particularly secure and that you have a lot of shady characters around and that you, you know, don't really care about the laws of the United States. So maybe we should get that stuff back because it's sensitive. 
and then saying, okay, now we're going to prosecute someone for having mishandled documents, which again, yeah. sounds like a technicality. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad they went and got our stuff. Um, for all the national security reasons aforementioned, that stuff was. great, glad we got it back. But if they are going to pursue something further with Donald Trump, I really hope that it's about the huge, huge, um, you know, violence and um, and the coup that he led and not about, you know, tax fraud or something yeah. run of the mill. Yeah. Okay. And just briefly for our listeners, can you uh, just explain why the Justice Department generally doesn't comment on investigations when there isn't an indictment? Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, grand juries are supposed to be secret. This is not, um, you know, this this is a behind the scenes investigation and um, and they don't want to, um, you know, they, they don't want to compromise their investigation by having everything out in the open. They're still um, deciding whether or not to bring any charges. This is not a, not a trial. This is a, um, it's a check on a prosecutor to say, do you have enough to even keep this investigation going, basically? Um, which which is good to have because we don't want prosecutors running around just like, you know, invading people's homes. So um, we put together this grand jury to say, all right, you need to at least prove this threshold that um, you have enough that we should let you continue this investigation. Um, and but in, in doing so, you don't want to um, tip your hand to <laughs> all the many people who might be involved in this um, about what you're doing. And to Catherine's point, you don't want to tip your hand to who the Performance are um, mm -hmm. because they might be in danger. They might be, um, you know, threatened. We've seen <laughs> Trump already calling witnesses and telling them, you know, uh, not so subtly to uh, not cooperate. Um, so I think this is really about protecting the investigation and making sure that they can find out the truth, which is obviously what what they're after. Um, but I, for one, am just glad that they they got our stuff back, yeah. and we're not going to have like you know um, national security documents running around um, the golden toilets of Mar-a-Lago, like just <laughs> scattered amongst. So um, I think that's that's good. Uh, and then we'll see what happens next. Okay. I want to do um, a bit of quick uh, rapid fire Q&A from listeners because we've got a lot of questions this week just ab about, you know, well, what should happen next. So I'm going to, I'm going to run through these and then, and then if you guys want to engage with any of them by all means, but um, shout out to Politicology Plus subscriber, Michael, who writes, I'm very curious to know what messaging Dems should be pushing to jump in front of the inevitable politicization of the Justice Department. Um, another listener says, should DOJ or FBI comment or hold a press conference or defend the search? Uh, uh, should more Democrats be calling for the release of the search warrant? How can Dems effectively leverage this in their messaging? There was a ton of questions like this, like, hey, what should Democrats do now? Um, my answer to like, should the DOJ or FBI comment? First of all, they're not taking advice from us or you or anybody else. But first of all, no, no, because the times when you think uh, you know, that the circumstances are so extraordinary that they warrant breaking the rules or breaking form are exactly when you want to follow that form. Um, that's what it's there for. Um, anyway, any, anything come to mind in terms of how, how Democrats, uh, ought to be talking about this? We're going to get into the Republican reaction to this in the next segment, but first, what are your thoughts on, um, on sort of what everybody wants to know, which is what should, what should we be saying? I think you should um, go back in time and tell that little story to Jim Comey. Hey, maybe you shouldn't comment 
when you're not supposed to comment. Just saying. That could have saved us a lot of grief if we would have yeah. <laughs> yeah. go back in time, tell Jim Comey what you just said. No, Don't comment on it. Maybe Chris um, Ray is w- waiting for 10 days before the midterm. That's right. Maybe he's right. <laughs> it's going to be he's just, <laughs> maybe he is, but he's like, it's too early. It's too early. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, here we are. But the, um, I think the Chris Ray point is, is a great one, right? You're like, this is yeah. his FBI yeah. director. This is his FBI director. And yes. you know who, you know who has the search warrant? Trump's lawyer. They could yep. release it anytime. They're the ones Trump that are it. hiding it. Trump has it. Trump's lawyer has it. She confirmed she has it. If they're, you know, concerned about the search warrant not being valid, why don't they show us? But they won't. So I think that, that, you know, and and otherwise Democrats should stay out of it. I think they should let law enforcement handle it and um, talk about it as little as possible, except for when we are gleefully over a glass of wine, like, you Mm -hmm. know, thinking about uh, Donald Trump losing his mind about what what might be in there. Um, Mm -hmm. But in, in public, you know, we're going to let law enforcement do its do its job here. Yeah. Democrats should absolutely stay out of it and unless you are asked. And if you are asked, you say, why don't you ask Donald Trump what's in the warrant? If you want to know the details, go ask Trump because he can tell you. Otherwise, I don't work for the FBI. I don't work for the DOJ. And this is exactly how the system is supposed to work. So um, I, I totally agree. So the the idea that Dems can or should effectively, quote unquote, leverage this in their messaging, drop it. Drop it. You can only make it worse. Let let the, the crimes trump process. And you don't want to get engaged in process stories here. So just leave it alone. Um, uh, here's another one. Have Dems learned to let the Trump show happen on the side and focus on what they're doing for the American people, like passing the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act? I don't, I don't, I don't know the question, the answer to that, Lene. I mean, if you look <laughs> at my Twitter feed, the answer is absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but let's hope that most Americans are not looking at my Twitter feed. And I don't think yeah. they are, thankfully. Yeah. I think that the president has done a great job of focusing on what's going on. And it's kind of great that we have this like, ooh, surprise, Build Back Better is back in, you know, 5.0. And now it's about inflation reduction. Like we've got a big thing that we're doing right now. And so I do think um, keeping the focus on that is, is what we need to do, because I guarantee you 0% of swing voters are thinking that this has anything to do with who they're going to vote for in the midterms. Okay, let's pivot and talk about the ear-piercing reaction to the search. Um, Now, look, I think we all knew this was always going to be the case. Um, We've seen something like this coming for a long time. This has been you know, we've talked about this weighing heavily on Merrick Garland because it has to, right? A fierce backlash of claims that Biden's Department of Justice is weaponizing uh, law enforcement for political retribution, claims of illegitimacy. This was always going to be the case. So, um, Catherine, as you mentioned, one really, really, really hopes that the FBI and the Justice Department weighed heavily the wisdom versus the legality and legal appropriateness of executing this, this search, that you hope there's something really big. because. This is the kind of stuff that we're now going to be hearing a lot. Here's what Fox News host Laura Ingram had to say. The real target of this investigation isn't Trump. The real target of this investigation is you. Trump's daughter-in-law, Laura, also went on Fox to scare viewers into thinking the FBI would come knocking on their doors. RNC chairwoman Ronna McDaniel wrote an opinion piece for Fox doing the same. So Catherine, 
I, I'm so glad you're here today, first of all, because you, got, you guys won politicology roulette today uh, because we, were, we scheduled this long before we knew the new, this was going to be the news. Can you talk about the use of fear in the response and how we should expect viewers to react to it? So, I mean, the response, of course, is, is tremendously sad, right? Because the, the, the response has really been trying to create this sense of fear, of risk, of, you know, we're no longer a, la- a nation of laws, when in fact, it's the exact opposite, right? It's the exact opposite in terms of what happened. So I think the response was, was tremendously sad. And, and I, I guess it's right in line with what Trump said about, you know, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. That, that continues, I think, to be true. And, and I think the response has been pretty consistent. And and not just from Laura Ingram. I mean, like Marco Rubio, you know, had a, a really ridiculous, you know, kind of quote as well. And, and so not just sort of the usual Marjorie Taylor Greene kind of suspects, you know, people who used to be sort of, you know, respectable Republicans are also saying, you know, this is a terrible thing that happened and creating the sense of fear. Yeah. Uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy put out a statement saying that the DOJ has reached, yeah, a quote, an intolerable state of weaponized politicization. Yeah. And then he threatened, like, Merrick Garland, preserve your documents. Like, this is this is some next level shit. Um, uh, Mitch McConnell said that the Attorney General and the Department of Justice, uh, quote, should have already provided answers to the American people and must do so immediately, end quote. That's not what they're supposed to do. And he knows that. Um, Lene, the search warrant is under seal, obviously. The FBI and DOJ can't talk about it. We've already talked about why they won't comment on an investigation uh, before there's an indictment. How have Republicans been able to use that to their advantage? And how much do you think this is going to work for them? I mean, it only works for them with the people that were already on on board with them, right? I mean, as soon as this got out, there were Trump people, you know, surrounding Mar-a-Lago coming to the aid of their, you know, of their idol. <laughs> and, uh, and it gave Trump a platform that he hasn't had in, in recent months, right? I, I haven't had to hear the, the words Donald Trump every single day. Um, and, and that's been really nice, I think, for me and, and other people too. So this has reinvigorated, you know, the, the grievance politics around Trump that, um, that has always animated his base. Um, and gave them something else to be grievance-y about, aggrieved uh, about. And, um, you know, I think that that'll continue to fuel them. But it, there's nothing about the, the facts of this um, or the way it was handled that um, that are fueling that. Because, as Catherine said, it's, it's like literally the opposite, right? <laughs> it's not political at all. We went through a judge. Um, you know, if, if anybody else in America has stolen property at their house and we know it's there, we will also come and get that. You know, that's like... <laughs> Yes, if you have, if you're hiding stolen property at your house, Laura Ingram, we will come and get it, especially if it's a national security risk. So this this is um, what what should happen to every American, um, and and so I, I don't think there's anything else we could have done um, to minimize this reaction. It just is so um, completely divorced from the facts. They're they're literally just making it up because they don't know what else to do. And they know that they have to defend him. Um, but there's like, there's nothing to, to glom onto to defend him. So they're just making it up now. Yeah. 
Catherine, what do you make of this? You know, it 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 um it comes to mind that we've talked a lot about the consistency principle before, as Robert Chardini has talked about it, and how Republicans have been historically so consistently pro law enforcement, law and order, even right. Uh, and I wonder what you make of this complete about face um, when it comes to law enforcement. Um, you know, when you hear. After the search, Fox had guests calling for Republicans to dismantle the FBI if they retake the House, right? Paul Gosar tweeted that they have to destroy the FBI. You mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeting, defund the FBI. Defund the FBI. The Republicans want to defund law enforcement. It's what? amazing. Like, <laughs> Catherine, what, like, where's our consistency principle? Well, I mean, to me, the, the principle that really explains this in terms of psychology is the slippery slope right? That it, there's this gradual escalation. And so it's, you know, will you defend him on that and you defend him on that and you defend him on that. And they're just very, very far down the road. And so when you talk about the consistency principle, the consistency is not pro-law enforcement. The consistency is Donald Trump can do no wrong. And once you've forgiven, you know, point A and point B, I mean, it's the it's the Milgram study. It's the gradual escalation of this president has done thing after thing after thing that any other normal person would say, well, that's just, you know, a non-starter and and that's not what we're seeing. And the stories actually continue to come out. I mean, most recently, uh, a new book, I think it's maybe so many new books, maybe it's Peter Baker, Susan Glasser's book, but, you know, the the comment that Trump made to John Kelly about, you know, I don't want injured you know, veterans in my parade. I mean, just, you know, there are all these things that you just think, you know, this is just a terrible statement and completely against what the Republican Party used to stand for, pro-military, pro-law enforcement. And and yet the consistency is really about Trump can do no wrong. I can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. And, and I think related to that, I think the question ultimately is, is there anything that could be released that they found at Mar-a-Lago that would turn the tide? Is there anything? I mean, is, is, is it the nuclear codes? Is it that he had planned to bomb, you know, uh, China or, you know, France or, you know, what? I mean, is there anything that would, would people say, okay, that, that really is a bit too far. Um, and so that to me is a little bit of a terrifying question, frankly. And I think the answer is no. Like, right. I mean, that's what's terrifying, right? Because that may well be the answer, but that is, I mean, the big question is, and I, and I started off by saying, if it's some little, you know, well, yeah, I, you know, Obama wrote me a letter and I guess that belongs in the National Archives, but I wanted to keep it. No one is going to care about that. Just no one is going to care about that. And, and yet that still would be stolen property that, you know, should go in the archives. And so to me, the question is, is there anything that could be there? And this is sort of, I think your point, Ron, about what Andrew McCarthy said is that it's not going to be, you know, Obama's letter. It, it's not going to be something like that. But the question is, is there anything, I mean, Lene's point, a detailed plan of how to hang Mike Pence, you know, that, that you know, a, a, you know here's the scaffold and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have it wheeled there and, you know, then so-and-so and here's the rope. I mean, would that, or would it be like, oh, well, you know, Mike Pence, whatever. I, I mean, so to me, that's really the question. Yeah, I mean, and I think there is no way that we can call um, this Republican Party pro-law enforcement when they are defending, um, you know, attacking the Capitol Police <laughs> um, and, you know, in a in a 
coup attempt in which people died. Um, you know, you can't listen to the Capitol Police officers um, in, in the January 6th hearings and think that this Republican Party, with the exception of, you know, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, um, that has any respect for for the principle of standing for law enforcement. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. But um, I, I don't think that there is any factual nature of anything that we find um, that is going to dissuade um, folks that have already decided to cast their lot with him. The only hope that that I might have is that craven politics might save us here. So do you know who, um, you know, I saw somebody in my Twitter feed said, Ron DeSantis was like, he lives over there, you know, because... <laughs> <laughs> because Ron DeSantis is somebody who could really benefit if Donald Trump ends up not being able to run for president again because he's committed a felony um, or, or because, you know, at some point um, someone within the Republican Party decides that he's too damaged to run again. Um, so I think, sadly, that's the only thing that that might get us off of him for 2024 is a bunch of other Trumpy candidates who would like to be the alternative in 2024, but know that they can't beat him in a Republican primary. So I guess I'm hoping that Ron DeSantis saves us, which is a scary thought. That's a that's a that's a, that's a scary, scary thought. thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Catherine, I, I want to go back to that Laura Ingram clip for just a moment because it reminded me of a meme that just went viral during the 2020 campaign, a Trump campaign meme, which was sort of this ominous looking photo of Trump pointing at the, you know, the camera and the text says, they're not really after me, they're after you. Because that's exactly what she's saying. Can you explain from a psychology perspective, what's going on in a, in a piece of rhetoric like that, in a, in a, it's really a threat like that. Well, I, I mean, I think very clearly Trump has tried to position himself, you know, from the beginning as, you know, he's one of us. So he is the person, but he's really a stand-in for all of us. And he's a stand-in for all of us who are discouraged about lots of different things, you know, um, immigration, <laughs> um, affirmative action, you know, whatever, um, people taking our jobs, people coming into our country, you know, people um, insisting we use pronouns, you know, or whatever. I mean, all sorts of different things. And so I think that that sort of rhetoric is really about when they're doing it to him, they could do it to all of us. We are all at risk. We are all at risk. And you can just see that kind of rolling out into an announcement of his next run, you know, which seems like it will happen. Uh, and again, this idea of if you don't elect me, the country that we used to have is gone and the country will be taken over and you know, there will not be you know, regular law enforcement, you know, et cetera. Again, that that really it is about creating this intense fear. And it's also interesting in that if you look at the the power of emotion, we know in psychology that emotion is very, very persuasive, that emotion, people, you know, feel it. And, and often, you know, the feelings sort of override the cognition. Well, what is the evidence for this fear? You know, Lene's point, if I stole something, you know, probably I would get in trouble and somebody would come in and get it back. And and so it's not about, well, huh, I wonder why the FBI would have gotten a search warrant, you know, using all these steps. It's really just about at a gut level response. Oh, this is scary. Yeah. Okay. One more thing on this slippery slope. Jonah Goldberg wrote this wonderful piece in the dispatch. Um, yeah, Jonah Goldberg uh, sort of 
noted, very, very principled conservative, uh, wrote this piece, and he notes Mike Huckabee insists, we need to rally around him and simply say, he is the candidate. He will be reelected. That's because he's the only candidate who will have the guts to take on this incredibly corrupt machine. We must put him back and let him do this. I'm convinced at this point that this is the only hope for our nation to get it back to the point where people can believe in it. And Jonah goes on to say, this isn't an argument against banana republic politics. It is banana republic politics. Um, and he's, and he, he writes this, I'll put it plainly. If your belief in our country is so fragile and pathetic that you will lose hope for our nation unless Donald Trump is given free reign to cleanse the land of evildoers, then you don't actually believe in this nation. If your love of country is contingent on your preferred faction being in power, you've confused partisanship for patriotism. Taken seriously, all of this banana republic talk is un-American. The slippery slope being, Republicans are now talking about the Biden administration as the Biden regime, right? They're, they're completely, they're using a different vocabulary now in the way they talk about the Biden administration. They're talking about him as if he's uh, an illegitimate leader, but they're using the rhetoric of banana republics. What do you make of that? I mean, I think both parties um, have started to frame every election as if, um, you know, the the fate of the world depends on it. And, you know, and I think that that is more true, obviously, on on the Democratic side uh, than it is on on the opposite side. But it means that, um, you know, we are more and more motivated by uh, negative partisanship and, um, you know, hatred of the other side and fear that if the other side wins, um, that uh, we uh, that our lives are going to be in jeopardy. Um, and that's a scary thought. Right. I mean, I don't think when you were looking at like, listen, I didn't like George W. Bush. I had a lot of problems with uh, uh, what was happening in the early 2000s. But in the 2004 election, I did not feel that um, even though there was a lot of anti-gay stuff going on and that was very you know, harmful to me personally, I did not feel that my life was in jeopardy if, or democracy was in jeopardy if George W. Bush won re-election and John Kerry lost. Um, but we keep, um, you know, we, we continue to amp up the severity of the consequences around every single election. And, and like I said, for good reason on, on one side, right? Because uh, Donald Trump tried to steal the election. Steve Bannon is setting the stage to, to steal the next one. Um, but the Republican Party is using that language too. And it, it's, um, you know, it, it catastrophizes every single election um, and makes us all fear for our lives. And that is not a great way to run a democracy. Catherine, can you talk about the priming power of vocabulary like this? Because that's immediately what I thought of when I started seeing regime instead of administration, banana republic instead of democracy. I, I was thinking of priming. Oh, well, very good. Very, very nice tie-in with psychology. And yes, we know that that priming matters. I mean, so it sort of is funny why I mentioned before the the example of people getting concerned about pronouns, but basically what we see is that words matter. 
And words matter in a ton of different ways. And so when you are using particular kinds of language, you are actually creating a worldview. You are creating a worldview of what things are like. Um, I have my students read an article. I'm about to teach a social psychology class. And I have them read an article in which they literally describe global warming in, in one of two different ways. And one is sort of, you know, very, you know, scientific. Um, and then the other one is is very not, you know, is very sort of, you know, alarmist in that sense. And, and you can do that with all sorts of different messages. There's a classic demonstration of if you call something mad cow disease, um, it actually sounds much worse than if you call it, and I can't even say the word, but the word that actually is mad cow disease, which is a very long, complex word. Um, and But mad cow disease sounds like much worse than, you know, the other thing. And so what we know in psychology is that words matter and, and labels matter. And that can be true in all sorts of different images in terms of what it is creating in your mind. And and that's why the rhetoric really does matter. And, and I think we can even see some evidence that some of the language that happened right around January 6th was very clearly priming a certain kind of behavior that was not a normal tourist visit. So it's not just the case that priming matters in terms of how we think or feel. Priming can also push behavior in particular ways. God, I really hope this search is about January 6th. (laughs) On Tuesday, Politico published an opinion piece by Lisa Pruitt, which was really, really great, about John Fetterman's outreach to uh, rural voters in his campaign for the Pennsylvania Senate seat. Uh, Plus listeners, if Pruitt's name sounds familiar, it might be because we talked about another piece she wrote uh, about the divide in the white working class back in July with Mike Madrid. It's a really, really terrific um, piece. This piece focused on how Democrats broadly have a rural problem. The share of rural votes for Democrats has been shrinking for decades, but Fetterman has spent a really good deal of his time campaigning in rural Pennsylvania. Uh, He carried all 67 counties in the Democratic primary, but more importantly, he has visited every single county in the state twice. When he became lieutenant governor in 2019, he went on a 67-county listening tour, listening tour about cannabis legalization. It's not just that he's going into rural communities. He's going into what he calls ruby-red parts of the state. And just as, as an example, in early May, He visited five counties in one weekend, all of which Trump carried with at least 65% of the vote. Um, There's been resistance among Democratic campaigns to campaigning in rural areas. Sometimes campaigns and strategists point to the lack of comfort they and candidates have going into a presumed hostile environment. Sometimes they talk about the fact that it's harder to get uh, event attendance up or it's harder to knock on doors uh, because houses are further apart. Um, Yes, 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 yes. All of those things are true. Yes. Campaigning is hard. Winning is hard. Um, It goes back to Chuck Schumer's comment that uh, Dems will pick up um, two moderate Republicans in the Philadelphia suburbs for every blue-collar Democrat they lose in Western PA. Uh, So, Catherine, I want to start with you here. We have this tendency to have stereotypical views of groups we don't like and, um, and say, I can hate that group of strangers because the members of that group who I know and like are the rare exception. Um, And this is something that Brene Brown has written about also. Can you talk about the psychological impact that meeting someone from the group that you hate and having a real conversation with them can have? 
So psychologists call that the distinction between in-groups and out-groups. And what we know is that as soon as you have a belief that these people are in your out-group, you don't only just favor your in-group, that happens. But the other thing is that we do something called out-group homogeneity, in which we think, well, everybody in the out-group is all the same. Everybody in the out-group is all the same. And, And so actually having dialogue one-on-one with people is extraordinarily important. And I, obviously, John Fetterman is doing an excellent job. I was really, I loved that piece. And I, as I started reading it, I was thinking, well, that's exactly what Beto is doing in Texas. And then, of course, that's later right. in the piece, it's like, yeah, yeah. It, like it, it got to that. <laughs> um, I'll also just say on a personal note, I've been leading a research project this summer, um, which has been really fascinating. But but very briefly, I've had a group of undergraduates working with me on a study of police culture in America. <laughs> um, and so they have been interviewing police officers via Zoom uh, from across the country. So, you know, I teach at Amherst College in Western Massachusetts. My students tend to be, um, tend to be pretty liberal. Um, these are all women, young women who are doing these interviews. And, you know, I think many of them probably started out with, you know, defund the police. And the interviews have been fascinating because we debrief after. They're conducting the interviews. I'm not conducting the interviews. And we debrief after. And they'll, they have these stories of connection and compassion. And it's been super eye-opening for my students who I think went into it thinking, well, the police officers, they're all the same. And, you know, they're the out group. And, and it's been really eye-opening. So I, I really commend uh, Fetterman, you know, for what he's doing. And... And I think it really could make a difference in in lots of different ways. Okay, Lene. So, th- th- so the reason this piece st- stuck out to me was uh, in 2020 we ran um, a- at the Lincoln Project. We ran a targeted advertising campaign focused on this was this was some of the stuff that nobody knew we were doing at the Lincoln Project, and we're actually working on a project right now to tell this story. Um, but nobody knew we were doing this. We ran a targeted advertising campaign focused on the very red parts of the country, um, in, in the, you know, in the electoral, uh, counties that we needed to win. I was, uh, just talking to some of the political and digital staff, uh, who worked on that project. We went into these really red areas and tried to shave off a couple of voters here and there and impact the race at the margins. And it worked. So I want to know for, how are you thinking about this as a political strategy, um, it's something that Fetterman has leaned into. Tim Ryan is running a similar play in Ohio, uh, talking about trade and talking about the the exhausted majority. Um, and and just like I want you, please give me some hope that Democrats around the country are paying attention. That's really what I want to know. <laughs> are Democrats around the country paying attention, and um, and how do we get them to pay more attention? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think they are. I think they have been since 2018. You know, I mean, I think there was. Um, there, there was a real recognition um, in 2016 that uh, in some of these states, when Hillary Clinton would come, she would only go to the big city, and she um, sent a message through that um, that those were the people that she cared about, and you know that I think um, was one of the recognitions that folks had uh, when Donald Trump won was that uh, the Democratic Party and and many folks in the Democratic Party um, seem to be totally fine if, um, you know, small towns and rural areas are dying. You know, they think, okay, well, that's fine. All your kids are moving away to go to college and then they're going to move to a big city. Well, that's, that seems fine with me. Um, And, you know, as someone who grew up in rural 
northern Minnesota, um, and my parents still live there. Um, I don't want small communities to die. Um, and I don't want all the young people in Bemidji, Minnesota to have to move away. Um, it's, it's a beautiful place with lots of lakes. It's very cold. So only go there right now and not in the winter, but, um, you know, there, there are so many wonderful things about living in a, a place that has more space and less population density. And, um, we did this project over, uh, a couple of years ago where we mapped the congressional districts um, and party control in the Midwest. And you look at, um, you know, Colin Peterson used to represent my my neighborhood in, in northern Minnesota. It's this wide swath of uh, of land. And you see the, you know, in 2000, there's all these wide swaths of blue. And then they get more and more and more and more concentrated. And if you think about congressional districts, um, all of them have about the same number of people in them. So the bigger they are, the less dense the population, right? So we had these huge swaths of blue. And then we have the same number of seats now in the Midwest, but they're tiny places because the population is so dense there. And watching that like transform over time from, you know, mostly looking blue with small pieces of red to mostly looking red with small pieces of blue and realizing that that's the same number of seats, but we've just literally concentrated. Um, it's kind of scary because now you're seeing, you know, wide swaths of people who have never seen a Democrat. <laughs> Um, so anyways, that's an aside, but, um, Gretchen Whitmer really started to turn this around, right? She said, well, you know, I'm going to go to the upper peninsula of Michigan, even though it's super hard to get there. It's really inconvenient and it's going to take a lot of time because it is important to me to send a message, not just to the people that live in the UP, but to other people who might consider voting for me that I care about all the communities in Michigan and not just, um, the big blue ones, not, you know, I'm not just going to hang out in Ann Arbor because it's comfortable. I'm going to go to the UP where Bart Stupak used to represent, you know, uh, a democratic viewpoint in that area and now, um, would not be welcome in today's democratic party. So, um, I think we, we absolutely have to do this. And I think even, even just to send a message to swing voters that, um, we, we care about more than, um, rich white college educated people in the suburbs. Um, and I hope that more and more people continue to run this Whitmer, Ryan, Fetterman playbook, um, because it's frankly the only way um, that we're going to be able to build majorities, especially realizing that, you know, the Senate has a rural bent, the <laughs> Electoral College, <laughs> um, all of these things are set up to to overrepresent um, rural areas. And, and we cannot continue to build a sustainable majority just by winning more and more and more and more votes in LA. That just doesn't translate to any yep. more political power. <laughs> yep. And we should not let it go by that Senate Republicans, which have a rural bent, as you mentioned, just voted down a $35 cap on insulin prices as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. And diabetes is 15 to 70% more prevalent in rural areas compared to urban areas, according, it's according to HHS. So like, we should also be thinking about how Dems can focus on showing their understanding for r problems rural Americans are facing in light of how their policies can help them. And I, I presume that's also part of the strategy. Go ahead, Catherine. So the other thing which occurred to me about the Fetterman ad is there's something in psychology called social contagion, which is basically that we are influenced by people broadly in our network. And, and so we think about that, you know, most directly with people right in our, you know, community, our neighborhood, our workplace, our family or whatever. 
But you can actually see contagion broadly through a network. There's a pretty famous study that was done in Framingham, Massachusetts, that looked at how happiness, you know, for example, spreads within a network. So what also occurred to me is that when Fetterman is going out to these places, he may not be convincing people in these, you know, very, very red districts. But those people have friends and colleagues and neighbors probably throughout the state. So maybe that person's like, I'm still not going to vote for him, but they have a conversation with their mom or their sister or their high school friend who lives somewhere else. And they're like, yeah, you know, I kind of thought I would hate him, but, you know, he actually made this one point. And so it's also would be interesting, I think, to sort of trace um, how you could imagine changing people's minds just a little bit, not flipping the Mm -hmm. vote, but just changing their minds a little bit and how that could open up conversations that would then ripple through. So you may not be changing the voters in those places, but you may actually see that effect in terms of the conversations that are happening with voters in more purple districts. That's what it really occurred to me. Yeah. I mean, I imagine one of those conversations is the fact that Fetterman doesn't look like a Democrat, like physically doesn't come across as one. If you Mm -hmm. were just to see him on the street and hear him talk without listening to the words, you'd think he was like MAGA Republican guy, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, Things are not always what they appear. Mm -hmm. He certainly doesn't look like an elitist or, you know, an Ivy League educated, uh, you know, Twitter lefty. So I think, you know, he conveys the the one of us brand. Yeah. It's like the John Tester brand of uh, kind of moderation, which is, um, you know, it's, it, I always say there's two different kinds of moderates. There's like the Evan by moderate. That's like, yeah. I don't want to say anything because I don't want anyone to be mad at me. <laughs> and then there's the John Tester moderate. That's like, well, I agree with you on that, but boy, you're wrong on that thing. And that's, <laughs> that's the Fetterman, you know, Fetterman did a whole daily episode about how like Democrats saying we can't use fracking is going to lose us Pennsylvania. Like he's, he's not with the, the lefties on that. Um, and on a lot of things, but then he's like, okay, let's legalize all drugs. I'm like, oh, wait, what? What's wait, happening? What? But, really? Okay. You know, it works. <laughs> Tester 2024? That's right. Okay. <laughs> but, so, but so what yeah, occurs to me is that what Fetterman has in common with Trump is authenticity. Right. Mm-hmm. That that when that's you right. that there's no sense of Fetterman being like, oh, this is the right policy or this is the right. I mean, that's exactly your point, Lene, right? He's he's completely authentic. And that means that he's gonna lose some people. He, he's gonna lose some people all the time, right? I mean that 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 some people yeah. are gonna disagree on almost every position he has. Um, and yet he is absolutely authentic. There's nothing about his message that feels poll tested, right? And and frankly, that is what has appealed to people about Trump, that he says things that I think, but I would never say aloud. And and Trump seems to come across as a very, very authentic candidate. And, and that does seem to be, I think, something that really resonates with people, that people, when they say, I don't want a regular politician, it's why Trump cleared a, a panel of, you know, 16, you know, standard Republicans who had sort of poll-tested messages. And and Trump won. And I think Fetterman is of a similar vein in terms of what voters are craving is authenticity. Totally. Totally. And irreverence. Mm-hmm. That he's mm-hmm. got he's got the irreverence going mm-hmm. for him too. Now that we are up to speed on a couple of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what you're watching under the radar. I mean, Lene, the radar is kind of just like 
exploding right now. So I don't know what's, what what do you you have for us? I've got something and I think it's going to make a lot of our listeners mad at me on Twitter, but I'm going to do it anyways. Uh, So Twitter's not really. It's not. Um, it, well, it might make some of my friends mad too, but it's just <laughs> okay. truths. So the, um, you know, under the COVID emergency um, measures that we've we've been under since Trump and then and then Biden, one of the things we've done is said no one needs to pay back their student loans during this time, right? So we've had a payment pause on student loans. That payment pause is has been kicked out approximately. 80 times at this point, because no one really wants to do the work of starting to make people pay back their student loans again. It's complicated to implement, and it's probably not super great right before an election. So the latest deadline is the end of this month. And advocates are really working hard to make that the time in which Joe Biden would announce broad-based debt cancellation for all. Um, because, you know, it kind of goes goes with the theme, right? So what they're hoping is he'll cancel 10K of student loan debt for every borrower and um, and kick out the payment pause until, you know, sometime next year. Um, that is a very bad idea because, <laughs> because yeah. a, you know, the, it's, it's an incredibly regressive policy. Uh, most student loan debt is held by the people in the highest income quartile, and um, only 12% is held by households in the lowest income quartile. Um, and so giving away $10,000 to a bunch of people who, you know, have gone to Harvard is like not my priority for how we spend money in, <laughs> yeah. in this country. It also is inflationary. And we're trying to not be inflationary at the moment. Um, but the thing that has gone under the radar about this discussion that's been going on since the beginning of the administration is the Supreme Court. So remember the decision that they just had in the EPA case where they, um, you know, they struck down administrative action um, on climate change? Well, this is setting up another challenge in exactly that direction, right? Because the Supreme Court um, has said that if an, an administrative action has political or economic significance, then it's it's too far. That's that's not something that doctrine, they can do. I.e., right? Right. What is more politically and economically significant than canceling everyone's student loan debt? <laughs> it's yeah. like literally the definition <laughs> of that. Um, so I think there are uh, there are folks that are very concerned that you know it any decision in in that direction would be struck down by the courts. It would leave people in limbo. It would be you know um, a, a huge mess. Um, and it's possible that the Biden administration is going to do it anyways because um, the people who work in this city and the people who uh, write about politics all have student loan debt because they all went to college. And even though, you know, two thirds of Americans did not go to college and uh, less than 20% hold student loan debt, all of those student loan debt holders uh, work in politics and run these campaigns. So, mm. um, you know, the, there's the there's the anti-Fetterman elitism coming for you. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but uh, suffice it to say that pressure is high. And um, if they do cancel student loans, it's likely going to be in the next couple of weeks. All right. Well, I will join you in the uh, in the effort to make people mad, uh, unfortunately, because uh, it's, speaking of that and also speaking of trying to not be inflationary, I'm watching inflation. 
and uh, and we we just got a we just got a new CPI print out for July, which is eight point five percent. Eight point five percent was lower than we expected. It was eight point seven percent expected, which means that's a good thing, right? It means it's slowing down. It means the inflation growth is slowing down. But never never assume that the Biden administration won't make an unforced error when they don't have to. Karine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, then tweets, we just got news that, that we had 0% inflation in July. That's a flat-out lie. I don't care how you want to spin it. And guess what? Your job is to spin, Kareen. Your job is to spin. It doesn't mean you get to lie. And so, okay, what, what could have been a really great moment for the Biden administration to say, hey, by the way, inflation's cooling down. We're, we've turned a corner. This looks good. Right before the election, instead, now the, all they're doing is drawing attention to the fact that they wish it, that they, it's not zero. It's actually still close to a 40-year high, which is 8.5%. Two, like two-tenths of a point off from the expectation is not like huge celebratory news when you have to defend the fact that it's not zero, which is what she just did. So, man, talk about stepping in it. Um, everybody knows I've been watching inflation, and this was actually like positive news for the economy. But there we go. Uh, Catherine, what do you got? So this isn't exactly under the radar, but it's something that has really stuck with me. And that is Serena Williams' decision to retire from tennis in order to have another baby. And and that is a topic that, you know, I talk a lot about with my students. I teach a class in close relationships. I teach a class in sports psychology. And, and here you have this example of an athlete who, you know, by all accounts is still, you know, really at the top of her game. And I thought the interview she did with Vogue talking about her daughter saying, I want to be a big sister and her recognizing that at 41 as a woman, you know, the, the, the clock is ticking um, very, very literally and, and her decision to step back. And I just, I had lots of different feels about it um, as a woman, as a mom. And I, I commend her decision, but I also, you know, could hear in her words that it was really hard and that, and the sort of acknowledgement that this is a choice that, you know, women have to make and and men do not. And we've talked a lot about the abortion issue and pro-choice, pro-life, but here's an example of someone who wants desperately to have another baby and is making a career choice to step back in order to pursue her family goals. I mean, as a as a tennis fan and as a Serena fan, I uh, this this is on my list to read. I haven't gotten, I haven't quite gotten there yet, but um, this is, first of all, it's a great story. Also, the uh, we should note the usual thirty five dollar upper bowl tickets for the U.S. Open are now going for um, seven thousand dollars for opening night. <laughs> so, like, good for her, really. All right, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, we're going to talk about Liz Cheney's latest ad and her primary campaign. Uh, where can everybody find you on the internet, Catherine? I'm on the internet on Twitter at Sanderson Speaks and on Instagram at Sanderson Speaking. And by the way, did we ever, did you ever publish the, did the January 6th committee ever publish your testimony? They have not, um, but I am working on a small um, piece uh, that will be a okay. summary of it um, that I will release. And I think their plan is to release um, the a whole big report later. And so I've just been kind of deferring okay. on them taking the lead. Got but it. It, it will not go – Okay. it will not be permanently unavailable. How about that? <laughs> okay, good. Because I would really like our listeners to have yeah. access to it and read it yeah. and just let us know when that happens. Will do. Lene. Where can everybody find you on the internet? I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter. 
And I'm at Ron Steslo on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.